Welcome to Forging Plowshares. We hope you enjoy this conversation and are challenged by it. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry. We're continuing in the uh, <clears throat> book of Corinthians and Paul in this letter, he write, partly as a result of sexual scandal, uh, he writes the letter, a man's living with his father's wife, Christians are visiting prostitutes, um, and it raises a basic question which he will answer, and that is, what sort of body are you? And that's my title and the question I want to raise. It's a fundamental question, I believe, that we need to ask and answer, uh, especially in this day in which we're inundated by sexual uh, scandal, from the president to Supreme Court justices to the hashtag MeToo movement. Men from every walk of life Uh, the film industry, radio personalities, uh, businessmen have been accused um, and some prosecuted uh, for sexual abuse. And unfortunately in various branches of the church it is even worse than in the secular culture. And of course that's what Paul is going to say to the Corinthians that you're doing things that even the pagans wouldn't do. Uh, the violence of the Christian pedophiles or sexual abusers in the Roman Catholic Church, uh, it amounts to an epidemic affecting tens of thousands of children. Um, And it's not as well documented, but uh, maybe because of the looser organization in Protestant and evangelical churches, but it's about the same. in Protestant churches. Uh, a grandson of Billy Graham, and I'm not quite sure how to say his name, Boz Chavidjian, uh, is a, uh, who has started a, an organization to prosecute these crimes, uh, was a state attorney in uh, uh, Florida, and he says sexual abuse in evangelicalism rivals the Catholic Church of the early 2000s. Now we might consider this an, an anomaly, and this is the Washington Post ran, ran a story on this. Diana Langberg, who is a psychologist, you know, has been for 35 years working with members of the clergy and trauma survivors, says this notion that sexual abuse is a disruption or an anomaly. She says that is itself part of the problem. And the article, the quoting her as it concludes, that Christians are forced to reconcile a kind of cognitive dissonance. Uh, How can the church called to be the hope of the world be an incubator for such evil? And the, the article concludes that Christians must face the sin in their midst and make the church a place that follows the biblical command to care for the powerless and the victimized, or avoid the disruption and churn another, that is to avoid the disruption of of noticing it, and churn out another generation of silenced victims. And so church leaders, the grandson of Billy Graham said, they tend to 
circle the wagons out of arrogance. He says, I've worked with churches across the theological spectrum, fundamentalist, progressive, and they're turning, they're they're self-protective. Tolerating sexual transgression is part of the necessity, it seems, of maintaining the status quo of these institutions. The Roman Catholic Church, the Evangelical Churches, they, you know, maybe we should say we do not want our people, our church, exposed. The people would be forced to change the hierarchy. They would be forced to change even church doctrine, right? Would be forced to confront the epidemic which surrounds us. I think it's obvious that these systems structure desire through law or doctrine in such a way that transgression supports the desire and the belief attached to it. That is a church, an institution that tolerates this sort of sin actually breeds it and maybe needs it. Fundamentalism gives us a steady flow of Jim Bakers and Jimmy Swaggerts. Evangelicalism just seems to have an endless number of Bill Hybels in the same way that Roman Catholicism seems to manufacture pedophiles. By not coming to grips with the characteristic nature of sin, these systems reconstitute it. The law always has its transgressive support, the law of sin and death. Doing a particular form of evil so as to produce a particular form of the good. This is Paul's definition of sin. Shall we sin that grace may abound? God forbid, he says. Which indicates that these forms of faith may perpetuate rather than identify and dispel sin. And so Paul confronts this problem as it exists in Corinth. He does it by exposing the factionalism, the various grabs for power and position. He says this has nothing to do with Christ. And then he thematically describes the church as a very different kind of body. So I'm going to read from the opening of the letter, but I'll take it as thematic that he's introducing a theme and I'll pursue that theme. It's actually the theme of baptism and how baptism reconstitutes the body through the body of Christ. Let's read verse 19 to, uh, starting verse 17, rather, to 19. Now I exhort you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be made complete in the same mind and in the same judgment. For I have been informed concerning you, my brethren, by Chloe's people, that there are quarrels among you. Now I mean this, that each one of you is saying, I am of Paul, and I of Apollos, and I of Cephas, and I of Christ. Has Christ been divided? Paul was not crucified for you, was he? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that 
no one would say you were baptized in my name. Now I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized any other. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not in cleverness of speech, so that the cross of Christ would be made void. I think we can uh, maybe think, oh, here Paul is diminishing the importance of baptism. But in fact, from the rest of the letter, I think just the opposite is the case. The danger is that if he had baptized, they would have claimed an undue attachment to Paul. As opposed to properly understanding the nature, the true nature of their baptism, which he's going to say... You've been baptized, now here's what this means. The goal of baptism is to surpass the dividedness. As he says in verse 10, that you be made complete in the same mind and in the same judgment. And so throughout the letter, Paul confronts the various sexual perversions by suggesting that they recognize that there are two notions of the body. Two forms of identity in regard to the body and in regard to human desire. The Corinthians might choose to join themselves, he says, to prostitutes. Perhaps in the spirit of Aphrodite, the temple there, the goddess of love, you know, located in Corinth. Or they might join themselves to Christ. But they can't do both. Do you not know, he says... In chapter 6, verse 15, that your bodies are members of Christ. Shall I then take away the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? May it never be. Don't you know that anyone who joins himself to a prostitute is one body with her? For he says, the two shall become one flesh. You have been bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body. What they do with their bodies is determinative of the sort of faith they have and the sort of temple in which they worship. To imagine that one could join himself to a prostitute and remain joined to Christ, Paul says, that's a contradiction. Don't you know? Your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. And so the way you're joined to the one necessarily obstructs obstructs being joined to the other. As he says, one cannot worship idols and Christ. One cannot worship Aphrodite and Jesus. The problem they are having, maybe, is the same problem that modern day pedophiles and fornicators have. They imagine they can have sexual relations which are not connected to spiritual relations. Maybe they say, oh, there is no sexual relationship in that, well, relationship, that's of the mind, that's of the spirit, that's religion, and sex, that's of the body. And the two cannot, or should not, perhaps, be coordinated in this failed notion of what a subject might be. And so the problem is a tendency to be disincarnate, to imagine that one is separate from their body. And this, of course, is the classic of Gnostic thought that the height of freedom was thought to be emancipation from the defilement caused by embodiment. The body is a tomb, or as Plato puts it, 
The body is a prison house of the soul. The opposite is the case for Paul and in Jewish thought. True existence for human beings is a full life on earth uh, in the body. That is, life beyond embodiment was inconceivable, even beyond the grave. Thus, bodily resurrection was the prerequisite for redemption. How are you saved? You're raised bodily. And they've begun this in baptism. That's the picture of death, bodily death, and bodily resurrection. That we begin to live out this resurrection life now. As Paul says in chapter 6, food is for the stomach and the stomach is for food. But God is going to do away with both of them. But for the Lord, uh, uh, the body is not for immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord is for the body. Now, God has not only raised the Lord, but will also raise us up through his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? And so he says this again and again in Corinthians. He says it in Romans and Galatians. Remember what sort of body you are. In chapter 11, this is the very purpose of communion. Recognize the body of Christ. In chapter 12, remember your baptism and what that means. Our baptism is one of the things, you know, that it's a, a way to remember. It's a remembering sign like communion itself. You know, it's sort of like at our wedding. We look down at a wedding ring and we all say, oh, I said I do. And I remember. And when we say, when we remember, psychologists tell us that it's almost that it fires uh, in our brains the neurons that we almost repeat that experience. And it, it creates that, uh, it's like reliving it. Um, and so remember we've entered into a new relation a new covenant we've commenced a new journey Paul says remember your baptism for even in chapter 12 as the body is one and yet has many members and all the members of the body though they are many are one body so also is Christ for by one spirit we were all baptized into one body whether Jews or Greeks Slaves are free. We were all made to drink of one spirit. Now, I'm going to say this. This may sound wrong, but let me explain it. I think they have a body problem. I think the church today has a body problem. A divided, unholy body may refer to a corporate body. It may refer to an individual. The split, divided body that is always our problem in sin. We're divided against one another. We're divided in ourselves. And we identify in and through this difference. Baptism construes the body differently. Now to say this is a body problem, it may be a little bit misleading. Because the Greek term that we translate, you know, soma, the Greek term that we translate body conveys a full notion of personhood, the full reality which comes with embodiment. James Dunn says that Soma, it is man embodied in a particular environment, the body being that which constitutes him a social being. 
a being who relates to and communicates with his environment. It's like our discussion about you know the generation of Noah that Seth is in the image of Adam where Adam had been in the image of God. That our embodiment our being in bodies means that part of who we are is an absorption of the environment of which we're a part. So soma is the means of living in, of experiencing the environment. And in the New Testament, soma or body is what people are. Such that if they are saved, it will require the salvation of their bodies in resurrection. And that's what baptism is. Rudolf Boltman emphasizes that part of the meaning of this word includes a capacity to objectify, to split the self, to reflect on the self. And of course, this is the Gnostic. This explains the idea in Gnosticism uh, that the role of the body, oh, this is not I, this is not me. I am not my body, but I have a body. It is mine. And so the experience between the I and the not I is part of the dynamic of alienation constituting this Greek word. That body which one might think can be reduced to the biological dimension, our physical body, uh, we turn away from that. The subject turns away and is unable to accept that I am my body. And Paul calls this, he has a name for it, he calls this the flesh. And this seems to represent this second self in its objectification. The flesh is a power that lays claim to him. Claims, you know, that he ha- to such an extent that he, it's like an alien force, he says. And so the passage is from being a body to establishing a symbolic distance from the body. There is a rejection of the body and a desire for self, and it's displaced then. And Paul, you know, it's displaced on the prosthetic of others. Paul says, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? For you have been bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body. And so in Christ there is the possibility. As Jesus says in the high priestly prayer. I in them and you in me. That they may be perfected in unity. Holy people are a unified people. Unholiness corrupts, and corruption divides and kills. In Paul, the fully, you know, interior self or self-conscious ego, and the word ego is just the Greek word for I, is the ego of sin. And so the tradition or mode of consciousness in this Pauline sense, there can be no spiritual I. There can be no, you know, me or I, which is my own. For it is the ownness of self-conscious ego, which is the very antithesis of spirit. There is no longer I. I have been crucified with Christ. It is not I who live, but it is Christ Jesus that lives within me. 
And so in Paul's depiction, the soulish-minded individual has a stunted interior notion in which the self-conscious ego or I is the very center of desire. And yes, I said soulish. Because, you know, this is strange that we have the notion that soul is innately immortal or eternal. In Paul, the soulish individual is the individual who is lacking in spirit. It's precisely the opposite. And so the ego, the I, makes its appearance. Remember in Genesis, the first I in the Bible is spoken by Adam four times after the fall. It's spoken in conjunction with transgressing the law. And this is Paul's explanation in Romans 7. The I or self, you know, think here of narcissus seeing his own image in the water, seeing his own reflection, which he falls in love with. The, the reflection is simultaneously you know, the eye that is posited and lost and unachievable, but desire. And so man discovers this split between the law of the mind, as Paul calls it, and the law of the body. And this is death. This split, this divide, is the meaning of death entering in. The eye is born to die and never achieves full reality. And Paul calls this the body of death, the body of sin. And the point is that desire or covetousness is centered on, you know, what is human desire? What do you, what do you desire? Well, ultimately you desire this I, this false construct. You know, I think therefore I am, or I must consume or obtain, and the goal is of arriving at the self. And Paul depicts this in Romans as a sexual desire which cannot be satisfied. An exponential desire. Paul speaks of the death of this eye with no apparent harm to the self. You can crucify this eye. You can get rid of this eye. I died to the law, Paul says, so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live. The I that can be crucified or put to death in baptism is presumably a false construct of sin and a subject of the law. It is not who we are in our true essence. This subject is expendable. Paul says, my brethren, you also were made to die to the law through the body of Christ. So that you might be joined to another, to him who raised us, who raised Jesus from the dead. And so in Romans, in Corinthians, in Ephesians, the joining is, it's explicitly conjoined or pictured in terms of human sexuality. Paul says in Romans, one can be like a woman who consorts with a man, or one can be found in Christ. In Corinthians, one can join himself with a prostitute, but this cannot be coordinated with one who is joined to Christ. You can't do both. Or one can cleave to their wife and the two become one. But Paul says this is actually a consummation 
fully realized between Christ and the church. And so the joining is directly related to the fusion of bodies, the completion of the body, perhaps, through Christ's body, as it occurs in baptism. And so the failure of the subject, you know, the body of sin, it is self-antagonistic. It is in discommunity. It is a corporeal failure. And this is precisely what is addressed in the death and resurrection of Christ in the baptism, in bodily baptism. It entails entry into an alternative body, an alternative environment, an alternative society. And so the failure of communication, the failure of communion, the failed corporeal identity, how is it remedied? By joining a new communion. And so the failed body, you know, with the body of death, those qualifiers, the body of sin, describes the orientation of this subject to death. But in baptism, this is suspended. And the word here is is a hard word to translate. But the idea is that we can, in some way, suspend this desire, this body of death. Uh, that one form of the body is brought is is uh, you know undoes it's brought to nothing Paul says so as to bring about the fullness of the body in Christ who we are finds its fullness in conformity Paul says in Philippians and Romans in conformity ultimately to his resurrection that we begin to live out resurrected life for the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus. Set you free from the law of sin and death, he says in Romans 8, 2. So there is a suspension of the law and a reorientation to death. Therefore, there is now no condemnation of those who are in Christ Jesus. What is that condemnation? It's not a future condemnation, but he's describing the suffering of the forces of evil as they work themselves out in human life. The curse of the law is suspended. And so the punishments of the law of sin and death are inherent to this law as it sets one to desiring that which is unattainable. And it is this exponential desire which accounts for child sacrifice, you know, the sacrifice to Baal, maybe this child sacrifice in Roman Catholicism, in Protestantism, It is this curse that repeats itself in every illicit union and every sacrifice of another human, whether in idolatry or in clergy sexual abuse. In Christ, the relationship with God is no longer based on an alienating death. You know, the way that Paul, he describes an animate force of sin has been displaced by life in the spirit. He says in Romans 6, Soar through the Spirit there is resurrection life and conformity to Christ. And here he's calling them to remembrance of their baptism. And so the compulsion of sin is displaced by the remembrance of baptism. Do you not know that the one who joins himself to a prostitute is one body with her? And so the former amounts to being joined to death Being joined to Christ is life. 
And you've been joined to an alternative reality of God in Christ. Paul pictures the body of sin that it has been entombed by means of baptism. I died, I've been buried into death. But this death is not simply anyone's or even one's own death, the entombing or emburial. It actually involves the joining of two bodies in death. It says we were buried together to him through immersion into the death that he died. There is a physical, corporeal, spiritual relationship with Christ which defies the notion that the body cannot be coordinated with a love relationship. And this is thematic in Corinthians. He's going to come, you know, he says being joined to Christ is to pass into this incarnate relationship in the body in which everyone finds themselves and their purpose in the body of Christ. And then he'll move, you know, uh, in chapter 12 and 13, he'll talk about the depiction of love. That love is made possible through this incarnate relationship. We're now incarnate. We're now part of ourselves. We're part of the body of Christ. And that's the only way that you can actually love another person. Is through this real world embodiment. As Paul tells the Corinthians and Romans, realize the truth of your baptism. Baptism is an ontological alternative to the body of death. There is a joining to Christ's body as a new subject. As the American Catholic priest Joseph Fitzmaier has stated it, ontologically united with Christ through faith and baptism, Christians must deepen their faith continually to become more and more psychologically aware of that union. We must practice our baptism, put on our baptism, fully realize our baptism through a continually joining to the body of Christ. Do not forsake the body of Christ for the body of death. Put to death the lusts of the flesh and put on the hope of Christ. Paul says in Colossians, do not lie to one another since you laid aside the old self with its evil practices and have put on the new self who is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. In Galatians, for all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. And let me close with a passage from Corinthians 6, 19 to 20. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own, for you have been bought with a price? Therefore, glorify God in your body. Forging Plowshares is a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom by providing in-depth, transformative biblical and theological education and discipleship. If you have been moved by this podcast, please remember to share on social media. If you would like to know more about Forging Plowshares, would like to contact us with questions, want to ask about how you can get involved, or for more information about how you can support this ministry, 
please go to our website at forgingplowshares.org.